0: to Embracing the Journey, a program focused on the freedom that comes from being able to talk about death. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank. Our topic today is signs of decline. Our conversation will focus on the language of discussing decline and understanding where the person or family is and their understanding of the disease course and identifying what they may see happen to their loved ones. With us today from Hospice of the Foothills are Michelle Tagg, medical social worker, and community liaison, and Donna Brown, RN, certified hospice and palliative nurse and hospital liaison. Welcome, Michelle and Donna. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. And I'm going to start with you, Michelle. Could you tell us just a little bit about your job at hospice and and maybe how you got there?
1: Sure. Um, So I am currently the community liaison, um, outreaching to facilities and families in the community who may have questions about hospice, may have questions about the end-of-life process. I have been here about seven and a half years and started out as an admissions social worker and worked my way up, I guess, is the best way to say it, um, to now being able to to do outreach with community members.
0: Thanks, Michelle. And Donna, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh,
2: yes, Lori, I, I've been here at Hospice of the Foothills for, I think, almost 23 years, and I'm just getting ready to retire. Pretty excited about that. So it's been a great journey here at Hospice of the foothills, I started out as a case manager, as a registered nurse managing a caseload. And then I um, managed the, what was the transitions program which then evolved into our outpatient palliative care program. And then I moved into some management for a while with our clinical, um, clinical staff. And then I went into the liaison job about 10 or Actually, I think it was about 13 years ago, and hospital and community liaison was my primary role, providing education uh, to community facilities and community organizations and individuals, and then also working in collaboration with our local hospital, uh, Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital.
0: Well, Today, we're gonna be talking about signs of decline, and, and oftentimes when someone's facing a terminal disease, they may have ups and downs um, along the journey. So, how do you distinguish what's a real sign of decline? Are the signs dramatic? Are they gradual?
2: Well, I think that's what kind of creates this this um, unknown uh, that people struggle with. They the the depending on what the process is, it could be a very swift decline and a very um, distinct signs that come along with a disease process or it could be the peak and valley or the roller coaster decline that we see with many of our patients that have chronic disease and maybe not just from the primary um, disease or illness such as heart failure but maybe they're having other complications from uh, kidneys or from their Breathing with their pulmonary system, or maybe they have diabetes, or maybe they've had a stroke along the way. So yeah, it it can be very misleading exactly what specific signs of decline and where that individual is at when they are having the roller coaster decline. Um, when an individual is in a um, has had an acute event or a diagnosis that is specific and their treatment options, they've either decided not to pursue those treatments because they're not beneficial. And this cancer comes up very quickly, I think in everybody's mind, that if they um, don't want to pursue treatment and you know, then we can kind of designate signs of decline more specifically for that individual. Um, but we do have criteria for decline that we look at as clinicians And we can review that. Um, We can also review that. So, what are some
0: of the the signs of decline? You've mentioned a little bit, but are there some specific?
2: So, so I signs. There is. So, I think we're talking about a couple of different, two different things, which is kind of one of the distinctions we wanted to talk about today. Was that people that are in chronic disease and they're doing the roller coaster, that they're going to have incremental changes. They're going to have changes in their, um related to their primary illness and maybe the other illnesses that come along the way. Um, so some of the things that we look at specifically are with mobility. How are the people able to mobilize themselves? How much adaptive devices do they need? How is their activity tolerance? Do they have good stamina? Are they noticing that they have to take more rest periods? Um, The other is about how they provide for their activities of daily living. That's personal care, feeding themselves, um, being able to get their own meals and shower and dress themselves. And then we look at um, how are they eating? Are they able to take in enough nutrition? And are they losing weight? Are they losing muscle mass? Are they looking more frail? Um, And so the other, so those are part of the physical signs that we kind of classify as functional status and, but those are pretty specific and any one of us, we don't have to be a clinician to kind of look at those things about ourselves or our loved ones and figure out if there's been some changes that have been coming along the way. But the other things that we're looking at are recurrent infections, recurrent falls, and hospitalizations, um, restorative power. You know, how, how are people recovering from an illness? Are they recovering back up to baseline or are they having the stair-step decline, which, is, um, which we see a lot of, is that they never quite come back to baseline and they're a little bit um, below what they were originally and they're needing more help, uh, more support, and they're depending on others to meet their care needs. Um,
0: well, so this may be a question for Michelle in terms of when hospice, if they're involved, see, see this, or the medical professionals and the family members see this. How do uh, caregivers adjust their caregiving as Somebody is exhibiting signs of decline. Michelle, you want to get take a stab at that?
1: Sure. Um, so one of the um, signs of decline that we come up against often, and that we actually were discussing and preparing for this, is um, often we may hear family members saying, "Oh, Dad's getting better. Um, you know, he's he's better now that he was in the hospital." And so we don't think we need hospice, or we don't think we need the support that we thought we needed. When in fact, when we look at um, the record, we may see that there have been several hospitalizations, there may be ups and downs, and the improvement has come as a direct result of the treatments that were offered while the person was in the hospital. And so, um, you know, it's important for us to be able to talk with caregivers and look at as Donna said some of these signs of mobility and ability to care for themselves um, you know frequent hospitalizations um, whether or not the symptoms are changing and progressing um, all of these factors come into play um, in in really addressing, what an accurate um, picture of that person's health is at the time that we're talking with them. So I think caregivers, um, because they're with their family members or their person, um, you know, on a daily basis, it's it's more difficult to be able to remove yourself and say, oh, this is his fifth hospital stay, or this time he's in the hospital and his oxygen is needing to be increased, or now he's on oxygen. Um, so it's kind of looking at the the whole orchard and not just the tree of, of the moment um, is, is the best way to kind of think of it in your mind. Um, and really... I think at that time and every time that we may talk with a family member or every time that that person is hospitalized, having somebody on the team talk about goals of care and what, what that looks like. for that So I'm going
0: to just take a brief break here, Michelle, to let yeah. the listeners know that they're listening to Embracing the Journey uh, on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and my guests are from Hospice of the Foothills. Michelle Tagg, Medical Social Worker and Community Liaison, and Donna Brown, RN and Certified Hospice Palliative Nurse and Hospital Liaison. So you are talking about something really important there, Michelle, that once the family begins to, to acknowledge perhaps the decline that they weren't really able to see that were you talking about a plan? um,
1: Yes, so engaging them in that goals of care discussion, Um, and these discussions happen not just once, not just twice, but ongoing. Um, You know, I think one of the most important um, things that we can do, first of all, is find out what that Person or what that family's understanding is of their disease process, because what we understand may be different from what they understand. Um, And once we can put together um, some mutual understanding, we wanna touch bases on things such as advanced healthcare directive um, and who may be the person to go to for those decisions that are going to come next. So I think that's
2: a really good point. about, about living with the disease processes. And we, you know, it's really confusing and misleading sometimes about when the transition occurs that when people go from living with chronic disease to dying from. And I think that was the other point of, of language that is used sometimes in the hospital, you know, people are told, uh, accurately, maybe they've come in with their heart and they have an arrhythmia, and the arrhythmia they've treated. And so the arrhythmia is better, but they hear you're doing so much better. You've responded mm-hmm. to treatment. But the bigger picture is that there may be the heart failure, which is a chronic condition, continues to progress. And then the kidneys are part of that failure picture typically. Mm-hmm. And so it's important. I think the look at the little picture, but also then you have to step back and look at the bigger picture and using some of those, that functional status, i.e. how that individual's meeting or how much support they're needing for care needs gives um, gives direction to make plans, which is what I think, you know, with the advanced healthcare mm-hmm. directives is what kind of planning do we need to make right now in the next you know, day or week. And then what do we need to look for in the future about changing what we're doing in order to support our ourselves or our individual? And, you know, we could all do that every day, truthfully. And uh, well,
0: and my next question is, is probably reflective of just how dense any of us can be when we're seeing a loved one uh, near the end of their lives. But but is it giving up for caregivers to stop believing that their loved one may feel better? And, and I know you you were just basically (laughs) saying you've got, you've got to kind of open your eyes and see what's going on, but there's still something that just feels like, is it giving up?
1: And and so I think um, one thing that often I repeat to myself is, is reframing. So we're not giving up hope what but we are reframing what hope might look like. Uh, we may not be hoping for a cure. We may not be hoping for treatment, but we may have hope to uh, repair a relationship with someone, or we may have hope to be pain-free. Um, we may have hope to be able to do things that are still very important um, as part of this process. You know, and Lori, if I may point out, Um, One thing I heard you say just a minute ago was this end of life or nearing death. And I just want to say that this is a process um, and this process may, although we may be living with an illness that is life limiting, we are not talking necessarily about a two week out process or near death in terms of hours or days. But sometimes this process can be months um, and it can be years and hospice has supported people, um, you know, up to two years if necessary, or if they continue to meet qualifications. And I think that's a very important piece for people to know is that we are not just talking about those last minutes and days. Um, That
0: is really well said. I, I love how you use that reframing and reframing with hope because This is such valuable information you're sharing. And there's just a part of my head and I'm sure probably other listeners heads like, but I don't want to hear this. Yeah. (laughs) And and yet the way you just reframed, Michelle, uh, about the reframing, it, 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 it was an invitation, an invitation to continue this conversation and be aware. And I love that, you know, make plans for what we can do.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, there's so much left still. It doesn't mean the end is now um, in some situations, but you know, it doesn't mean that always. And so let's find what, what is possible.
0: Well, what about pain? How, how do you deal with pain? How does, uh, how, do, if, if our loved one isn't able to communicate well, you, uh, but they appear to be in pain. What What are signs of pain, and and what are ways to help relieve pain?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you know, we as clinicians are are expertly trained to evaluate uh, individual either if they're able to respond to our questions, and also by nonverbal um, responses. So you know, we are able to evaluate someone who is not able to um, respond verbally just by witnessing their nonverbal responses, by their body posture, by their, uh, they, their grimacing, maybe, um, and, and then someone who is able to respond to our questions, you know, we're able to define that pain better, but also we're able to define, because there's many, there's a couple of different types of pain, which require different um, medications and different treatments for So we want to kind of define where the pain is coming from. And we use a medical history, of course, to allow that a little bit more deeper look in that. And that's where some of the diagnostics that individuals have had come into play. And so in making sure that we give them the right medication for the pain is absolutely um, is very, very important. And then also, if someone is able to swallow well, or. we can also have liquid preparations, or we do shy away a little bit more from the uh, transdermal preparations, especially with our hospice population who doesn't have a lot of subcutaneous fat. So we have to look at that criteria too about the um, the medication getting ef- um,
1: efficacy. In so. in from the social work perspective, um, there is also emotional pain. There is the spiritual pain that we are also looking at. Um, And pain has such a connection as Donna was saying, you know, we want to treat that physical pain. It directly relates to our ability to feel well enough to eat. Um, It relates to anxiety. It relates to, um, you know, feeling Tired or not feeling tired, so there is a lot of connection to those pain um, feelings, regardless of whether it's physical, emotional. Um. You know, I think that's really important to understand
2: that because, um, you know, how many times do we get asked as a patient, "What are you really worried about, or what's what is impairing your ability to have a good day today?" And it might not always be pain, it may be anxiety, or I'm really worried about uh, the, I'm worried about my family, I'm worried about uh, money, I'm worried about many, there's many things out there that are, that can create um, pain, not just physical pain. And I, one of the reasons that I think we're trying to have people understand about talking about planning earlier and about is just to have a better communication and relationship with your caregivers and your family so that you can have this open communication, this two-way street. And I think that alleviates a lot of, it it doesn't mean people aren't gonna be sad or anxious about having those. They're tough, tough discussions. But by opening those doors, then you can acknowledge you're both sad, you're both worried, you're both anxious, and then move forward a little bit with a better planning and, um, and supportive planning. And then if you never talk about it, if you never say you're worried or you never open those channels of discussion, then that's where people get into uh, really urgent situations. And then things happen that like where they're going to live or have their care needs met happen that they may not. Have wanted. They may have wanted a different story for themselves. And that well, requires planning.
0: So that is a kind of tied into my next question in, in terms of how do caregivers provide the best comfort? And I was originally thinking in terms of physical pain, but you know, you're again opening my mind and my thoughts that that this is not just physical, it, it can be, you know, emotional or spiritual pain. So you know, we're talking about the kinds of things that hospice sees and does, but how does a caregiver provide comfort in this area?
1: I think one of the one of the most important ways is to anticipate future needs. Um, and I know before taking this job, that may not have been a skill that I necessarily had, but. I think being able to um, be or be willing to ask some of those difficult questions, such as what might we expect um, for caregiving needs? What, it, what will I need to do if I'm the person taking my mom home? Um, will I need to be doing toilet care? Will I be needing to bathe? So being very clear on what the expectation is um, and then being... Clear and being willing to ask questions about how to utilize resources that are available um, or knowing where to go to find those resources. Really anticipation is what our team will do if on hospice, Dr. Cronlin will anticipate what some of those future physical pain or physical symptom needs might be. So it's all about trying to prepare So that we don't have these crises that Donna referred to where all of a sudden we are scrambling, Um, you know, we have people on service who might be living alone. But on that first day of admission, we want to be sure that we are opening the door to have those discussions for a time when they might need care. What are the options? Is there, you know, do they have insurance that might cover a nursing facility? Do they have finances to hire a caregiver or to go into assisted living? Um, So there are a lot of questions and we don't need to answer them all on that day, but we want to get those wheels turning so that we are not caught off guard.
0: That also then leads into, is this something that that people can expect when they engage hospice services? this kind of support, to me, it's like an arm around the shoulder, it's like, here's a conversation we need to have, is this something that can be expected to, to receive that kind of support from hospice?
2: Absolutely, you know, hospice is built on the domains of providing support for support around physical, emotional, spiritual, and psychosocial, uh, aspects uh, that includes the patient and the family. Mm-hmm. And it includes the team players of hospice that are the our medical director, the patient's primary care physician who, you know, hopefully knows them. Uh, we have a hospice aide that's able to provide personal care with intermittent visits. Uh, we're able that, and a lot of this is training. You know, we're really training the caregivers and we're advocating for the patient's care to be met in a a specific way. And that's very important for patients that are in facilities. So we're role modeling how to care for individuals that cannot care for themselves or maybe advocate for themselves any longer. Um, And then I think the important part of the social worker is about supporting with community resources, what's out there. Typically families are fairly overwhelmed and patients are overwhelmed with trying to figure it all out. And so having the social worker there for community resource support, maybe they haven't tapped into things um, that might be helpful for them because of a variety of reasons is very helpful. And then our 24 hour availability for our nurse Mm -hmm. to answer questions and give good direction um since we know things happen in the middle of the night and on weekends and um and that also prevents from crises pain Mm -hmm. crises emotional crises it helps support family that might be coming into town that haven't seen their loved one for months or years and then it also prevents those hospitalizations those unnecessary or unneeded hospitalizations by having hospice on board
0: is hospice available to everyone who is dying?
1: Sure. So um, hospice is available to anybody who has a life-limiting illness or a terminal illness. Um, so their primary care physician would make um, that initial certification that if their illness were to take its normal course, um, they would have a life-limiting term of six months or less. Um, And then our medical director becomes the second physician to certify based on records and based on the disease um, process that she is provided records for that. Yes, she agrees that there is a life limiting illness.
0: So if somebody is exhibiting all these signs of decline and, and they are do appear to be dying, wouldn't it make sense that there's some kind of illness behind that?
2: Yeah, it would. <laughs> well, I think in those words dying, the word dying, we, we've learned that people aren't really, they, they can, when they hear the word dying, they're thinking hours and days. That's right. And this is always the, this is kind of the hitch sometimes where I think um, living, living, when does it transition from living with your illness to dying from your illness? And, and we see hallmarks of that decline months, years, before. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's going through the roller coaster of they're getting a little better, then they're getting sick, and they're getting a little better, and they're getting sick, then it's even harder to define. Whereas the reality is, is each one of those acute illnesses could have been a time that the individual might have declined and died from that Mm -hmm. um, secondary event. So I think um, it is cloudy, and it is difficult to understand. And I think that's um, one of the reasons we are encouraging people to kind of look bigger and ask more questions and also seek, seek support. You know, hospice, we're full of information here and, and, uh, and we can provide support just by talking to patients and families. They don't have to be on hospice. The liaison- well, And this,
0: this is a full circle conversation. I mean, would come to that, that point again and where we're talking about the signs of decline and and, and why we're having this conversation. So we're down to our final seconds here. How do people connect with hospice of the foothills? What what are some of the easiest ways?
1: Um, So you can call our intake line at 530-274-5139. Um your doctor can always make the referral, but anybody can call in and ask for information, ask for um, a visit, contact. Um, the hospital is always um, an avenue if you are there and just want some questions answered. We are willing to talk to anybody who is willing to listen.
0: Well, thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Donna. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank. I've been talking with Michelle Tag, Medical Social Worker, and Community. Community liaison and Donna Brown, RN, certified hospice and palliative nurse and hospital liaison. You can tune into and listen to Embracing the Journey on the fourth Tuesday of each month at 6.30 p.m. Thank you to our engineers, Ralph Henson and Jeff Wright and to Jeff Wright for our theme music.